the Old Testament, God raised up incredible heroes to accomplish his plan on earth. Oftentimes, they are portrayed as superhuman and near perfect, when in reality, they were normal, everyday men and women with strengths and weaknesses, just like everyone else. In this series, CMC's pastors will share the stories of these heroes of faith and what we can learn from them as we pursue God's call on our lives. Join student pastor Josh Barnett as he teaches on Esther. Welcome to church, everybody. Glad to have you tonight. Uh, my name is Josh Barnett. I'm the youth pastor here. I'd like to join all those, um, or welcome all those that are joining us on podcast as well. So really excited about part seven of our Heroes of Faith series, looking at Old Testament characters. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about Esther, uh, looking in the book of Esther. Um, so last week I, I had the book of Ruth, so there's only two books in the whole Bible that are named after women and of four pastors. I got both of them, so I don't, I don't know how that happened. Uh, but, I, but ladies, I consider it winning the lottery. I don't consider it a curse. It's a, we're empowering women tonight, so, uh, so I'm excited. Girl power. Um, but let's talk about Esther. Uh, just kind of a little background and setting here for you. Uh, this book is unusual in the Bible because it's, it's the only book in the Bible that actually does not mention the name of God at all. It uh, doesn't mention the name of God at all, and this actually caused many early church fathers to even question the book's inclusion in Scripture, but you can clearly see God's presence throughout the book. You can clearly see Him working throughout it all, and I really think it's a creative way that God invites us to see Him behind the scenes. I think it's a creative way that God invites us to see Him working through His people because He is literally all through it without even being named. It's really, really neat to see. Um, this book follows Nehemiah, but it actually takes place about 30 years prior to the events recorded in Nehemiah. It's 103 years after the Israelites have been exiled, taken by Nebuchadnezzar to, uh, into captivity. It takes place in the Persian Empire and mostly in the king's palace, which we're going to see tonight in the capital of, per, of the Persian Empire. Uh, the book of Esther is an example of God's divine guidance and care over our lives. His sovereignty and power are seen all throughout the book. It is a story of the profound interplay of God's sovereignty and the human will. It's a story of God preparing the place and the opportunity, but his people choosing to act. It's a story of a young woman owning the moment that God created for her. So let's look at the story. In chapter 1, we see King Xerxes throwing a party for all 127 of his, of his provinces. And that, this isn't just any party. This is a party that lasts for 180 days. Golly, this is a party that lasts for six straight months, and mainly it's just to show off his wealth, uh, is all it is. It's to show off his wealth. At the end of the party, then he has a banquet for all the people, so the, the party's just going to keep on going. Verse 7 here, it says, Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, edict of the king no limits were placed on the drinking, so this is going to get out of hand real quick. For the king had instructed all of his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day of the feast, the last day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine. I'll let you figure out what that means. Um, he talks to his seven eunuchs. He wants to bring, verse 11, he wants to bring Queen Vashti with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze upon her beauty, for she was very beautiful. Verse 12, but when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king very furious, and he burned with anger. 
Um, she refused. She didn't want to be a trophy wife, apparently. Um, all this guy wanted to do was show off how beautiful his wife was. I didn't think it was that big a deal, but she, she did not like that. Um, he was just trying to show how pretty you were. I mean, help a bro out. Like, come on in front of the guys and let's, let them see how pretty you are. He wanted to show off his wife, and I, I think she might should appreciate the attention from him, but, um, but she did not like that. And he's the king, and he really gets to do whatever he wants, and you don't refuse the king. So in verse 13, it says he immediately consulted with his wise advisors who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked their advice. So that in modern day terms, he asked the boys what he should do. He asked the boys what he should do. <laughs> verse 15, what must be done with Queen Vashti? The king demanded, what penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders. Verse 16, one of his eunuchs tells him, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will despise their husbands when they learn that she has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Medea will hear that the, what she did, and they will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and to their anger. So what he does, a lot of drama here to start off, a lot of husband and wife drama going on, but what he does is he banishes her from his presence forever. Um, that's a little brash. Little, he got in his feelings a little bit, got a little angry. Um, it, see, and I said this last week too, the Bible's not boring. It just depends on how you read it. But this reads just like a, like a soap opera. I mean, there's so much going on here. There's so much drama. We're not even out of the first chapter yet. Uh, but the king made a, a brash, feelings-led decision. Now, obviously, if we, if we look at, um, if we want to base this on, on husband and wife relations, we don't need to have knee-jerk reactions to things. We don't need to be led by our feelings. Um, impulsive decision-making can a lot of times lead to severe consequences. So um, we, can, we got to look and make sure that we're acting the right way. And then, obviously... Obviously, should go without being said, women are not our objects. We, do not, we don't own our wives. They're not our objects. They're, they're not something that we drool over. And so, obviously, this was horrible that he wanted to do this anyway. Um, women are daughters of God that we love, honor, respect, and promote. Um, their value is not based on their looks in any way. But I would get more amens from the ladies, but I'll move on. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 1, it said, But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. So bottom line is he wasn't mad anymore, and he was lonely. He started to miss her, so maybe, maybe banishing her forever wasn't the wisest decision. So um, anyway, verse 2, his personal attendants, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women and the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Uh, verse 4, after that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan in full effect. I bet it was very appealing to the king to bring the beautiful virgins from all over the land so that he can pick whatever he wants. Now, well, what's interesting here is this is the first Bachelor. Like, y'all thought that show was going on nowadays. Actually, it started 4,000 years ago. We have the first Bachelor show, so he's going to have all of his roses, and, and a, as they come in, he's going to be giving them away. So um, anyway, there's just a lot going on in here. It's just like watching a TV show. You don't need TV. You just got to gotta read the Bible. It's, it's entertaining. Um, but So anyway, we get into here, and we see... In verse time, it says, At the time there was a Jewish man whose name was Mordecai. 
He was from the tri- tribe of Benjamin, verse 6. His family, had been, uh, his family had been in Judah. They had been exiled to Jerusalem. Verse 7, uh, this man had a very beautiful and lovely cousin who was called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as her own. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem, the fortress of Susa, and placed in Haggai's care. Okay, so Esther is now a contestant. So we've got a Jewish woman that's a contestant um, in, in the, the, the greatest bachelor of all time. Uh, verse 12, it says, Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given prescribed 12 months of beauty treatment. 12 months. I mean, my wife takes a long time to get ready. But 12 months? I mean, come on. Usually, usually when we go out on dates and we, say we're leaving at 7, I usually look at the clock at like 5, 5.30 and go, babe, you should have been getting ready like two hours ago. Like, I don't, we're going to be late now. You should have been getting ready a while ago. But 12 months, I mean, come on. <laughs> Something we can take out of this, though, is that good things require lots of preparation. Um, and I would just want to encourage you. Uh, so it was 12 months. She comes in. They're giving her beauty treatment. So she has to be there 12 months getting ready for the king. Uh, so before she even gets to see the king, she has to get ready for that long. Um, and I just want to encourage you tonight that God may have you in a season of waiting, but while you're waiting, you're not waiting. Yeah. While you're waiting, you're not waiting. The waiting season doesn't mean you're doing nothing. It's actually a season of God preparing you for the moment that he created you for. And the beauty that was worked at by Esther, that what they were working on the outside, we got to put that much preparation to what's going on on the inside so that we can be ready for that moment that God has called us for. All these women brought in were virgins, and what this highlights to us is our purity. Our purity. Es- Esther was chosen because of her purity. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See, purity was a precursor for Esther to fulfill her purpose. We must strive to be pure in heart and live a life of purity, and with God's grace we'll accomplish our God-given purpose. See, Jesus cares a lot more about what's going on in here than what's going on the outside because he knows if he can make this pure on the, out- on the inside, then the outside will take care of itself. King David was anointed not because of his outward appearance, but because of his heart before the Lord. You want to see God? You want to see God move in big ways? It starts with purity. It starts with radical consecration from this world. In our entertainment, in our movies that we watch, the music that we listen to, in relationships, everything about us to to separate ourselves from this world and be radically consecrated unto him because I want to see God. Like That's a promise. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And so I want to be pure in all that I do so that I can see him move in my life. We've got to have King David's attitude in Psalms 51 where he said, create in me a clean heart, O God. Psalms 139 where he says, search my heart, O God. He said, if there's anything offensive in here, Lord, if there's anything offensive in my way, lead me into the everlasting way. So whatever, whatever's going on in here that's not of you, help me get rid of it, Lord, so that I can walk in purity before you. Verse 16, it says, Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in the early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any other of the young women. He was so delighted that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen. So she has been made queen. Uh, she was an orphan, she was a Jew, but she has found favor before God because of her purity and her obedience. And throughout this time, Mordecai has asked Esther to keep her nationality a secret, to not let anybody know that she was a Jew, and she has stayed 
She has stayed obedient to Mordecai even when she wasn't in his presence. She hasn't been around Mordecai this time, and she remained obedient. And it wasn't, it wasn't her mother or father telling her this. It was a cousin that adopted her. Now, that was a, now it was a spiritual father. It was someone who had taken under her care, but she re- remained obedient to who she was submitted to. And so because she, she was obedient, she was blessed because of it. we got to understand that even partial or delayed obedience is not obedience. And, and the thing I think that hinders us the most from seeing the Lord move in our lives is our disobedience. And so our goal, learning from Esther here, is that we have to have a pure heart and we have to walk in obedience before the Lord. Now at the end of chapter 2, in verses 21 through 23, Mordecai has been made a palace official, and he, overhear, he overhears two of the king's eunuchs plotting to assassinate King Xerxes. And so he tells Esther, she's now in a position to help, he tells Esther, and she tells the, the queen, and the eunuchs were put to death. So the king is saved here. Mordecai saves the king here. He's not really recognized yet. He's going to be recognized later. We'll get to that. But continuing on in the story, in chapter 3, we, we're introduced to a man named, named Haman. Haman uh, it becomes the most powerful official in the empire. Xerxes promotes him to become the most powerful official. What's interesting about Haman is that Haman is a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites. And King Agag was the king that Saul left alive that he was supposed to kill. Perhaps if Saul had obeyed the Lord, Haman wouldn't even have existed. Maybe God knew down the road that he, one of his descendants would try to kill the Jews. <clears throat> and also, this can mirror, mirror our flesh. Um, because once we get saved, our flesh is still there. We have to choose to continually crucify our flesh. We have to choose to continually put to death our flesh. Because down the road, something might happen. Something, uh, something we do will cause destruction in our life if we don't continually crucify our flesh, if we don't continue to put to death our old man. Romans 8.13 says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Romans 6.6 6 says, we crucify our old man. Paul, 7, uh, Paul says in Romans 7.18 that no good things live in our flesh. And then Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we have to be obedient and we have to kill what God orders us to kill, or it's going to cause destruction and chaos down the road, which we'll see what Haman tries to do here. If we, if we don't put to death our flesh, it will come back to destroy us. Now, <laughs> Haman has been ma- named this powerful official, and what he does is he requires all other officials to bow down to him. You can see this uh, going through chapter 3. He requires all of them to bow down to him, uh, save for one guy. Everybody does it except for one guy, Mordecai. And it's because Mordecai is a Jew. And so he refuses to bow down. He stays obedient to the Lord. And even in verse verse, uh, 3 and 4 here, people are asking him, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply to the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. Mordecai is an example of true loyalty and faithfulness to God for us because he refused. He refused to bow to anything. He refused to bow to anything in spite of consequences, in spite of what people said. He wasn't going to bow. Romans chapter 6 says, whatever we yield our body to becomes our master. 
And Mordecai had said in his heart he was going to be physically and spiritually yielded to God and not man. He was more concerned about obeying the king of kings than the king of Persia. Even if it means standing alone, we have to yield and we have to make make sure our hearts only yield to the king. Uh, Doing what's right isn't always going to make us popular. We have to understand that. But doing what's right will always make us blessed in the sight of God. We are called to worship God and God alone. Not any person, not any job, not any institution, not any government can take God's place in our life. Now, Haman was so enraged, so enraged. Uh, Verse 5, when Haman saw Mordecai would not bow or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it wasn't enough to lay hands on him. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire. So he wanted to commit a holocaust here and wipe them all out because this man would not bow to him. And so what Haman does is he goes to the king and he manipulates the king and says, there's this group of people that they're not going to follow your way, they're not going to listen to you, they're not going to bow to you, they're not going to do all these things. All they're going to do is, is seek to uproot you, seek to destroy you, seek to overtake your empire. So let's, let's sign this decree and let's kill them all. And he, so he manipulates the king into issuing this decree that they would all die on a certain day. Now he cast lots, meaning he kind of like he rolled dice to pick what day. And it, the day that it landed on was almost a year later. was almost a year later, which... We can see God working right there. That it wasn't the next day, right? <laughs> that we can see God working right there so that God could put his people into place to thwart the plan of the enemy. Okay, so uh, flip over to chapter 4, verse 1. It says, When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, went out to the city crying loud and wailing. So he's weeping and wailing because of what has gone on. So Esther hears about this. She sends people to find out what's wrong. Mordecai tells her what happened. Mordecai tells her what happened, and so he says, you have to go before the king. You have to go before the king. And she says, I can't go before the king. If you get, their law was, if you come before the king and you haven't been called, he'll kill you unless he holds out his gold scepter to let the guards, let the person come through. And she says, he hadn't called me in 30 days. Now, husbands, we cannot treat our wives that way. <laughs> 30 days. You don't need to go 30 days without talking to your wife. That is just not, you're not really setting yourself up for success there. But it's been 30 days. So she is afraid that if she goes in, that, that she will give her life. Let's look in verse, uh, verse 13 here. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. He said, don't you think for a moment because you are in the palace that you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if you were made to be queen for such a time as this? Inter- couple interesting he- things that Mordecai says here. He says, pretty much if you stay silent, don't think that you're going to be spared because you're Jewish too. They'll find out your nationality. And he's, it, but he tells, he tells her, if you stay quiet, God will raise somebody else up. If you stay quiet, God will raise somebody else up. And I want that to be an encouragement to us is is that if we are not obedient, God will find somebody that is. If we're not obedient to what God is calling us to do in our moment, such a time as this, he will raise somebody else up. He will find somebody. See, God wants to use us, but he's God. He doesn't necessarily need us. He'll raise up whoever he needs to. He'll raise up somebody else that will listen to him. 
And, you know, I, this, when Mordecai said this to Esther, I really thought of the verse where Jesus says, if you deny me before man, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. And so we cannot afford to stay silent in moments like this. If we don't submit and walk in obedience, he'll find someone else who will. But we should be desire. We should desire to be used as his vessels. We should, be, we should desire. It doesn't, it, yes, it benefits God's plan. It benefits him, but, but it benefits us. It gives us purpose in this life, so we need to submit to this. And we're all born for this moment. We're all born. Do you ever wonder, why was I born here in Arkansas? Why am I in this place? Why, why now? Why not in the 1800s? Why not in the time of Christ? Why not before Christ? Why not 80 years from now? Why this time? Because God has put you here for a reason. He has put you at your job for a reason. He has put you in this church for a reason. He has put you as a parent over your kids for a reason. You were born for such a time as this. God has placed us at this point in history to do something. He has a plan for us right now, every day to build his kingdom. Every day, 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the devil. To make disciples. He appointed us here for a reason. And so Esther takes his word to heart. She sends a reply to Mordecai, verse 15 and 16. She says, go gather all the Jews and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Eat or drink. Golly. That's a lot. That's a lot. But I love how before she does anything, before, because they have time, they've got almost a year, she goes to seek the Lord before she does anything. She sets herself apart to fast and pray, and she calls all the believers to it. And I think um, fasting and prayer is really key in a believer's life. I don't know if you've ever done a study on fasting. I don't know if you've ever seen actually how often they fast throughout the Bible. Um, but many times throughout the Bible, before awesome, amazing things happen, it's because people give themselves to fasting and prayer which we even see in this story right here, which we see in John the Baptist, which we, Jesus went on a 40-day fast before he began his ministry. And so we see awesome things break out after people start fasting. And if you even look and study history, amazing things happen after people give themselves to fasting and prayer to line up their life with the will of heaven, to grow closer to the Lord. It shifts something in heavenly places. It's doing spiritual warfare. And I love... Uh, a pastor named Lou Engel said that Esther appealed to the Supreme Court of Heaven and it reversed the Supreme Court of, of Haman. He said, if you can move the courts of Heaven, then Heaven will move the courts of men. So that's really, really cool. Really neat. Um, and I, I love that, that Mordecai and Esther, that they come up with a plan. You know, after this decree was made, they could have panicked, they could have despaired, they could have get, given up, but they saw that God had placed them where they were on purpose for this purpose so they acted with the opportunity that was given to them and I love what she says here end of verse 16 and though it is against the law I will go into the to see the king and if I must die I must die isn't that the picture of Christ right there Lord let this cup pass from me not my will but your will be done and so if it's going to take my life Esther is such a picture of it right here uh, that she, she, she had the same attitude like, that Christ, she's a, she's a picture of Christ. <clears throat> we have to have that same attitude in building God's kingdom every day. We've got to understand that people's lives and eternities are at stake. People's lives and eternities are at stake, so we've got to have that, not my will, God, yours be done. I will lay down my life for you. 
And I think many times we sit around waiting and wondering why the world's going to hell instead of working on bringing his will here, bringing heaven here right now. The world's going to hell. The church is called to do something about it. We're called to do something about it. We're called to, to beat back the forces of darkness. We're called to, to spread his kingdom and take dominion all over the globe. And a lot of people say, well, I'm just waiting on God. I'm just waiting on God. I'm just waiting. I think many times God's waiting on us. He's waiting on us to move. He's already given us an opportunity. He created us to tend this garden, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to make disciples, to raise your kid, to be the best employee that you can, the best plumber that you can, the best mom that you can, the best carpenter that you can, the best computer engineer that you can, whatever you do, the best job at it so that we can be a witness to all of those around us. I love this old, old quote. You may have heard it before. It says, pray like it all depends on God and act like it all depends on us. But we've got to avoid extremes of doing nothing and feeling like we have to do everything. We've got to avoid those two streams, but God has called us to do something, and so we have to pray and seek him, but we also have to act on it. Okay, so in, uh, in chapter 5, this is where she goes before the king. She goes before the king uh, after the third day of fasting and prayer, and when she walks in, he extends the scepter. He's pleased to see her. He's pleased to see her, and we see that, we see that in, uh, in Ephesians where it talks about how Christ's sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to the Father. And when we see Esther walk in, it's a picture of Jesus laying down her life for people, and she is, the king is pleased to see her just like Christ was pleasing to the Father. And so she comes in, she has a request for the king, the king asks her what her request is. He even says, I'll give you half my kingdom. Wow, like that's... You know, he's like, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll give you half the kingdom. So, ladies, find you a man like Xerxes that will give you half of the world, pretty much. Um, <laughs> but uh, she requested that he and Haman would come to a banquet and that, that they would have a good time. They would eat and drink and, and, and have a good time. And so they come in to what she's prepared. And at the banquet, he tells her again, I'll give you half my kingdom. I'll do whatever you want. Uh, what's your request? And she says, come back tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. So she's going to throw, she's going to throw another dinner party for him. He's going to cook for him again. Um, <clears throat> I think in this moment that Esther didn't rush. I think she was tactful. I think she was respectful. Um, sometimes, sometimes it's better that we, that we don't have a knee-jerk reaction. We sit back and just watch people. Sometimes we need to pray about it. Sometimes we need to see what's going on. Study the, study the situation before we just react. And that's what she did. And then she would answer the king's question. So Haman left the banquet a happy man in, in chapter 5, verse 9. He left, but as he leaves, he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai shows him no respect, and it makes him furious. So he gathers his wife and his friends, and he brags on himself about, I'm the, I, me and the king, we were the only people invited to Esther's banquet. I'm so awesome, I'm so awesome, I'm so awesome. But, I, but then Mordecai just ruined my fun. He just killed my, he killed my party. And so his wife and his, his friends suggests that he set up a 75-foot pole on his property and have Mordecai impaled on it, which is brutal, crazy. So he has it done. He has this pole set up. He wants to kill Mordecai on it. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says, That night the king had trouble sleeping, so he ordered the attendant to bring the book of history of his reign so it could be read to him. This is God moving right here. This is where the story pivots right here. Because he's, Mordecai is about to be killed the next day, and then all of a sudden the king's having trouble sleeping. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God waking him up in the night, letting him know something's wrong. And he just, I mean, who, 
I, I guess he wanted to read a history book so it would be boring and he could go back to sleep. I don't know. If, if you're a lover of history, that's fine. But I think reading a history book would just put me straight to sleep. So that, maybe that's what, he's, what he was going to do. But he reads the story of when Mordecai foiled the assassination. That's God. Like Of all the history of everything that he's done, and that's the story that he reads. And so he reads that, and what he wants to do is he wants to honor this man named Mordecai. He decides that it happened. So he wakes up the next day, he's trying to figure out what to do, and old Haman comes in. This is just comedic right here. Haman comes in, and the king asks Haman, what should be done for a man that honorably serves the king? How should I honor this man? And Haman thinks, he's talking about me. He's talk- he wants to promote me. He wants to do something special for me. And so he says, I think you should, I think you should put some robes on him that you've worn. I think you should put some kingly robes on him. I think you should let him ride one of your horses. And I think you should have another official walk him through the town declaring how amazing he is. (laughs) And then the king says, that's a great idea. The man is Mordecai. I want you to do it for him. (laughs) Golly, like, it's just just the best. I I love it here. And how humbling is that? And, and, and really, we just got to see from this that pride comes before a fall. Pride definitely comes before a fall. See, Haman wanted things money couldn't buy. He wanted things he wanted honor and respect. But we got to understand if we live for the approval and the applause and the popularity, we'll die by it. It'll, it will kill us. And, and no matter how much you get, no matter how many, if you do it for the pat on the back, if you do it for the hand clap, if you do it for somebody bragging on you, it'll never be enough. It'll never satisfy you. We cannot seek to live for the approval of men, but understand that we are approved in the sight of God. But Haman does this, and how embarrassing that he has to do this, and he has to walk through this. And, and I love what happens here, because Mordecai never, never sought to promote himself. Even after he foiled the king's assassination and nothing was done for him, he didn't seek to promote himself. He continued to serve faithfully. And if we'll continue to serve faithfully, God will promote you at the right moment. But Haman was interested in promoting himself, and so he really gets demoted. He really, he really falls flat on his face and gets embarrassed because he was trying to promote himself and trying to work it out. And Haman just, God, whatever you want to do, I'll serve you faithfully. I'll serve you faithfully. Uh, Mordecai never tried to manipulate the king, never tried to elevate himself, never tried to do something for himself. He let God work on his behalf. And if we will honor God, if we will serve him, if we will seek him in secret place, he will honor us in public. Let him promote you. Don't be a self-promoter, but let God promote you. And then Psalms 23, 5, it reminds me of this. He will prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. He will promote you in the presence of your enemies. And again, not to gloat in front of them, but that's just to show the world, this, this is what I do for my kids. This is what I do for my children. So <laughs> he leaves, he's embarrassed. He goes and has a pity party again with his wife and his advisors. And they tell him, it's so funny, they tell him, since Mordecai is a Jew, your plans are never going to work. <laughs> you need a, and they're the ones that told him to build the pole. They're the ones that told him, you've got to kill this guy. But they tell him, he's a Jew. Like, you've got to stop messing with this guy. There's, he's God's chosen people. Like, you've you got to leave him alone. All right, so then we see, we see in chapter 7, Haman is quickly taken. He's quickly taken from uh, his wife and his advisors, talking about the shame that he faced. He's quickly taken to the second banquet. And this is at the second banquet, banquet in chapter 7. Esther makes her appeal to the king. It's interesting, even in verse 4, she tells the king, King, 
I wouldn't have even bothered you if we were just going to be made slaves. What humility that is. Even if, we were, if all my people were going to be made slaves, I wouldn't even brought it to you. But we're going to be slaughtered if, if, if something doesn't happen. We're going to be killed if something doesn't happen. And so Xerxes, he gets all fired up and he's like, well, who, who is it? What kind of man would do this? And she says, this guy right here, <laughs> Haman right here. And the king's so furious, says that he runs out into his garden and Haman Haman is begging for his life to Esther, like, please don't have him kill me. Please don't have him kill me. And it says, it's, again, it's so comedic. He falls on Esther as the king walks in. And so the king thinks he's trying to, like, take advantage of his wife. Like, after all this, Haman, and now you're, like, trying to make a move on my wife? Like, and it says, as soon as he says that, uh, two, of the servants, uh, two of the king's guards come and put a bag over his face and drag him out. And they take him and they impale him on the very pole that he's had, that he's had set up for Mordecai. Proverbs twenty six twenty seven teaches us: If you set a trap for others, you yourself will get caught up in it. And that's what happened to Haman. Isaiah fifty four seventeen says: No weapon formed against his children will prosper. And I want to encourage you tonight: What the enemy means for your destruction, don't lose hope. Put your faith in God because He will turn it around and use it for your good. God is going to take care of you. He's going to prosper you. He's going to turn the tables on your enemy. We still got a problem here. As we start to wrap this up, we still have a problem. Haman's been taken care of, but there's still this decree that has been made by the king. And the, the king cannot take back a decree. If he has made it, he can't take it back. It's law. That's one of the laws of Persia is that it, it can't be taken back. So Esther goes before the king again, actually risks her life a second time, goes before the king. He holds out a scepter. They come in. He gets with her and Mordecai, and they come up with this plan where he is going to write. He writes another decree at the beginning of 18 saying that on the same day, the Jews can rise up and defend themselves. The Jews can rise up and actually attack those who were planning on coming against them. Now, what is super cool about this, this is the best part of it all. I was getting excited in my office today studying this. The new law supersedes the old law. The old law didn't become null and void. It was still valid, but the new law allowed the Jews to protect themselves and attack their enemies. Now, what if the Jews didn't believe the new law? They would have been easy targets, right? They would have been killed if they didn't believe the new law. If you do not operate under the power of the new law, you will succumb to the power of the old law. How does this relate to us? This relates to us because Jesus, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. We see in Romans 3.23 that the wages of sin is death, but Jesus came to redeem us from eternal death and bring us eternal life. The old law brings condemnation and shows us the power and penalty of sin, shows us that we couldn't save ourselves, but Jesus came to free us from the power of sin and death. And now we live under a new law of grace and salvation. I think that is just amazing and super cool that we see this right here taking place in Esther. Romans 6.14 says that sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. So we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteous living. Flip over real quick. I want you to see this. Romans. Does anybody else think that's really neat? I think that's really neat. This, I mean, that's the gospel right there in Esther taking place. Romans chapter 7. 
verses 4 through 6. Romans 7, verses 4 through 6. It says, so my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now are you, are, you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. Verse 5, when we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer held captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. And now look at verse, uh, chapter, eight, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. It says the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. And you can just so see that taking place. You can see the old law taking place here in the story of Esther, and, and Esther representing Jesus and coming in and, and imparting a new law that supersedes the old law so that we no longer have to live under the old law. I think that's so, so incredible and so, so awesome. <clears throat> he gives, after that happens, he gives Esther all of Haman's property, issues the decree. In chapter, end of chapter 8, Mordecai is actually honored um, he's honored before all the people. And, and I, just as he's honored there, again, he spent years of his life faithfully serving, bearing Haman's hatred and oppression, and then he risked his life for his people. And we got to understand, just like Mordecai, following God is a long-term commitment that ends with us being called good and faithful servant, but are we willing to pay the price just like Mordecai did? In chapter 9, when the day comes, the Jews overpower their enemies <clears throat> Mordecai gets promoted and promoted and becomes more and more powerful. And I, I, I so see Mordecai, Esther being Jesus, but I so see Mordecai being the church in this story and how the church, we're called to continue to take ground in this earth. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against us. We're on the offensive, taking back ground and taking dominion over the world. And I so see us as a picture of Mordecai in here. To close this, the book of Esther tells us of the circumstances tells us of some circumstances that were essential to the survival of God's people. These circumstances were not a result of chance, but of God's grand design. With God in charge, we can take courage through every circumstance that comes our way. And it's so neat to see God in charge all the way through Esther, where she finds favor with Haggai. The king falls for her over every other woman. God placed, or God placed her on the throne before the people even needed her. When, when Haman cast lots to destroy the Jews, it landed a year later, plenty of time for Esther to go before the king. And then we see the king not being able to sleep, decides to read, it foils the plan. I mean, we see God moving all through Esther without his name even being mentioned. But as we end, I want to encourage us that we were all born for such a time as this, just like Esther was. God placed us where we are for a reason. We have to act. We have to have courage. We can't afford to miss our moment. And I want, I want you to hear this. God's not looking for perfect people. I'm not perfect. But what God is looking for is he's looking for available people. He's looking for people that will say yes to his call with all that they are. And I want you to know that even though you can't always see God moving, his name may not always be up there in the lights or whatever, but I want you to understand 
that he is orchestrating your life for such a time as this moment every single day. Did y'all get some out of this? Y'all stand with me. We just went through nine chapters of Esther in less than 30 minutes. <laughs> that was a lot. Let's pray. Pray tonight. God, thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Thank you so much for, Lord, just in every, every book of your Bible, every book of the scripture, Lord, we see you moving. And, and you teach us and you rebuke us and you correct us and you, you shape us more to become like your son, Lord. We thank you so much for that every day, God. We thank you so much for us being able to come in here and worship you tonight and talk about your son tonight. God, as we leave this place, Lord, let us, always, let us just live with eternity in mind so that we will look for those such a time as this moments, God, when we're at our jobs, when we're with our kids, when we're in our schools, when we're in the grocery store, Lord, that we will always look for those moments, God. We love you so much. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We give you all the praise and all the glory tonight in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You have been listening to the Christian Ministries Church weekly podcast. Join us next week in our Heroes of Faith series as we minister on David.